Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement bathroom of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Sam Alexander with the news. To any survivors who can hear my voice, stay clear of the dairy-free zone. Last night, committee leader Joshua Khan led the vote to cut off those of us infected, effectively leaving us to die in quarantine. Let the road signs to our town go pasteurized because the dairy-free zone will lack those with tolerance. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Khan, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Hey, constant readers. And today we are tackling part four of The Stand, and we have CM leading our discussion. CM, take it away. Thanks, Josh. Last episode, Franny has the terrible idea to start a journal all about how much Harold sucks. One of our groups get into a gunfight. Harold starts his own Franny sucks journal. (laughs) The trash can man goes on a terrible journey. Larry and gang arrive in Colorado And Harold and Franny know that they know that the other one knows, but not that they know they know they know. (laughs) Teenagers. (laughs) It's a real uh, Chandler and Monica sleeping Uh, together situation. (laughs) First chapter jumping in. I know I'm supposed to be really concerned that Mother Abigail decides to wander off into the wilderness. And I'm supposed to be tense when Franny breaks into Harold's house. But holy crap, you guys, all I can think about is Kojak the dog. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great, because Ben and I had actually talked earlier about, I don't know how I'm not going to spend this entire (laughs) podcast talking about how great Kojak is, or should I call him Big Steve? (laughs) (laughs) A lot happens in this chapter. And then right at the end, when I had basically forgotten about Kojak, he shows up and you're like, yeah, this dog rules. I love him. The book's about Kojak now. <laughs> uh, if only. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of stuff happens in this chapter. So that much we, stuff. We happens. really need to cover. First of all, uh, Mother Abigail, it starts out with her um, trying to pray, and God has peaced out on her. Mother Abigail decides to take off and go on her spirit journey. So Nick, Glenn, and Stu figure out that she's gone, and they're talking about what they're going to do, and... I thought it was kind of weird. Nick's like, eh, you know, she she made her choice, man. Whatever. I mean, it's sad, but well, she's Mother Abigail. She's going to do what she's going to do. <laughs> it's weird because up to this point, Nick has been pretty adamantly at least agnostic. But I guess since coming to the free zone, he is kind of taken side with Mother Abigail on the, hey, this is all God's will stuff. Because everyone else is like, she's an old woman. She just wandered into the woods. And he's like, yeah. I mean, she'll be taken care of. Don't worry about it. Yeah, what are we going to do? Drag her back kicking and screaming? Mm -hmm. No. Okay, well, let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much it. Franny is in the library learning about gardening smart a lot of people are in the library learning how to do things that depending on where they came from they might have like no idea how to do like i know how to garden because i live in the midwest you guys (laughs) have any good skills that would serve you well in post-apocalyptic united states absolutely not 
Okay. No, I do a <laughs> podcast. <That's... laughs> I am actively a burden on society. <laughs> uh, Josh, you're useful in some way, right? Uh, I'm, I'm great at keeping it light. <laughs> that's my skill set. Like, if I was in a post-apocalypse, that's my job would just be cracking wise. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I'm going to do well. <laughs> Josh yeah. and Ben, you guys can come over to my house. Now, yeah. You're on the committee. Like, <laughs> for sure, you are okay. on the committee. <laughs> I'm fucking Charlie impening over here going, can we go somewhere warm? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Franny rushes home to talk to Stu because she hears the news about Mother Abigail. And Stu is gone, but it's cool, guys. He left her a note, and he is out with Ralph and Harold. And this is another opportunity for Franny to have a very strong intuition about something and then completely ignore it. She doesn't completely ignore it. She goes to Harold's house and breaks in. But she just doesn't... I guess I mean... Completely ignore it in a way that would like cue someone else into what's going on. Yes. <laughs> she keeps it to herself. She's so nervous that she's overreacting that she she dare not tell the big strong men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she does. She she takes a little initiative. She goes over to Harold's house. She breaks in through one of the basement windows. Again, huge red flags that he's locked all his doors. It's, mm weird and creepy over Although there. apparently he was right, because Franny's just going around breaking into houses. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, yeah, she she's like, it's really unnerving, something is wrong. And then uh, a, a weird thing happens while she's there. Of all people, Nadine Cross shows up. That was, so, I my note was like, what the fuck is she doing here? I mean... I know what she's doing here because these are the only two people, the the most like-minded people Mm -hmm. uh, with the similar agendas. But I was very curious what prompted a visit from Nadine. Stu shows Harold some kindness while they are out on their trip. And Ralph has great timing. So Harold, who had decided, okay, I'm going to kill Stu and I'm going to shoot him. And then maybe, maybe I'm going to kill Fran too. I don't know, but I'm definitely going to kill Stu today. It's going to happen. But his plan is thwarted by, I think, by kindness and Ralph's timing. That is an interesting, I was going to ask you guys. uh, So there's this, it it cuts to Harold up on, in the mountains. Uh, He had taken Harold, or he had taken Harold himself uh, <laughs> and Stu. Stu and Ralph out and they're searching for uh, Mother Abigail and he has a 38 in his pocket and he's like today's why not let's do this let's get it over with so I can head west but he stops at the last minute because as he pulls up to Stu Stu's like man you're a great guy Harold thank you so much I'm sorry I haven't given you uh, as much credit as you deserve, but uh, come on over whenever you want. You should have have dinner with me and mine. Like, you're a good guy. And he stops. And I even wrote, like, oh, he Harold is thwarted by basic kindness. Imagine if they had treated him this way from the beginning. And then immediately afterwards, no, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> 
just because people are dicks to you does not mean you grab a gun and like, yeah, I'll show them. And and they haven't. I don't think they've treated him except for Franny's journal. I don't think they've treated him unkindly. No, they haven't wronged not. him. It's all. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. He continually is saying they hate me. They don't want me to be a part of things. Everyone Causing else him to be picks, weird. Yeah. and make people go. That guy's weird. Let's not hang out with him. Right. The search parties are not successful, unfortunately, in finding Mother Abigail. And our group has a conversation about magic and balancing the scales. Did you guys find any part of that kind of interesting? No. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Uh, For risk of uh, talking way too much about the, the philosophical sides of this book. Yeah, I took so many notes about this because it's an insane argument. Uh, I believe Glenn puts out this this idea that, uh, about the age of rationality ending, mm-hmm. that all of the sci- uh, science and technology that we have caused all of this, and now they're just a bunch of people that don't know stuff. They don't <laughs> know how, uh, if they had to, like they're, they're working to bring the lights back on, but if they had to design it from scratch, if those machines hadn't been there, It'd be the Dark Ages. And he's like, well, maybe that's good. Maybe, maybe that's that's what we need right now. Uh, because we know that there's this evil force in the West and there's the magical happenings. Uh, he says something along the lines of, maybe what we need right now is white magic. That's insane. <laughs> that is an argument for uh, willful ignorance. Yeah. To say, nah, uh, I know that all, oh, technology bad, Black Mirror. Um, <laughs> maybe we should be an, oh, I'm going to use a word that I am not sure is right, egalitarian society? Oh, it sounds smart, so I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> Good job, Ben. <laughs> but we're we're going to be like uh, just dumbass farmers who think that thunder is angels bowling or whatever. And maybe they're, he, he, no, I think that's an actual thing he says in the book. Yeah. And he says, oh, maybe there, people in 50 years will think there are monsters in the troll, uh, trolls in the hills. People are going to be superstitious idiots. Good. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's crazy. (laughs) All right. Just saying no wasn't really enough to convey my true emotion. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The reason that I did not find this interesting, I'm so fucking tired of Glenn. I wish Glenn would <laughs> shut the fuck up because all he does is talk in circles and he doesn't contribute anything anymore. His time of being useful, as far as I am concerned and have seen, is done. Glenn can go away. I'm tired of his bullshit. All Glenn does is show up and argue the other side of an issue that gives us 30 pages of meeting notes because Glenn's got to bring up this point and then they don't do what Glenn said. So we just talked about it for nothing. Perfect segue into our next chapter, chapter 53, where they have this huge meeting and this is a big one. This is where they are putting out this motion. Like, are we going to ratify the constitution of the United States of America? Uh, What about the Bill of Rights? Meetings are boring. (laughs) (laughs) I find all of this interesting 
and I want to talk about it, but it's just mostly to just say the thing I said all last episode is they're trying to recreate a society that sucks. That's pretty much, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's, and everyone gets so hyped about it. When they they uh, ratify the Constitution, they sing the Star Spangled Banner, people are in tears, and people are just, like, losing their goddamn minds. Mm-hmm. Well, they have something to unify them. That was Mother Abigail. She's on a spirit journey, and now they have the flag, another symbol. Yeah. Okay, this might just be me, then. I felt like singing the National Anthem was a manipulation tactic. I always think singing the national anthem is a manipulation. <laughs> well, because the, the, we we know going into this, the biggest thing that they want to accomplish in this meeting is they want to get all seven of them to be the permanent committee. Mm-hmm. The rest of this is great, but this is their goal. Their goal is to take over the government at this point. So the first thing they do is get everyone off kilter, getting them feeling very emotional, patriotic, patriotic, uh, and wanting safety. And this is how they do it. Although their plan is kind of thwarted by Harold. I thought that was amazing. Thwarted in that it accomplished their goals completely. It accomplished their goals, but not the way they wanted to. It accomplished it by giving Harold more power. Yeah. Presumably, and if Harold will things be, don't go the way they go. <laughs> Harold will be remembered as the person who made this decision happen. Yeah. Uh, so Harold, uh, in this meeting, they, they had spent all this time worrying about everyone get one person to nominate you. But then Harold comes up and he's just like, hey, all you guys are doing great. I vote that you all uh, are the permanent uh, permanent committee in one fell swoop. And suddenly Harold is getting all the pats on the back. It was a cool moment. <laughs> it was a cool moment. And I love that Stu's like, well, where was that fucking idea, Glenn? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Harold makes a point later when he's being angsty by himself <laughs> that he's having all the good ideas for the community. He's kind of <laughs> not wrong. Uh, he, he does Ben, I feel like you're, you're getting a little episode okay. one-y. <laughs> <laughs> Just because... Like, okay. Just because I'm defending everything this guy does. Not, okay. <laughs> not everything. I'm, I'm kidding. Ben's not doing that. Uh, oh, no. It's it's not to fucking make... So much of the middle of this book revolves around Harold, weirdly. All of book two is just basically, what do we do about Harold? Yeah. Oops, we were too late figuring out Harold. <laughs> Well, this uh, the thing that I loved about this section of the book is this is Harold's redemption arc chance. Mm-hmm. There, everything that could have turned him around happens in this section, and things could have gone differently. Maybe there we're going to get a lot of those. I feel like, and it's interesting every time it happens. That sums up the first big community meeting. So Fran and Stu go home, and Stu is... We don't have to talk about this at length. I just wanted to mention it. Oh, yeah. Tells Fran the story of meeting evil Jim Morrison. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I love this part. I I don't like thinking of Jim Morrison as evil, though. I thought he was describing the man in black at first. Randall Flagg. Really? Yeah, the way he sets it up, I thought that it was going to end up that... 
I already met this guy like years ago at the gas station. Oh, I thought he was going to end up. It was Elvis. No, we already met Elvis. He yeah. raped the trash can. Oh, man. God. Oh, <laughs> yep. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. It's just a weird little story that comes out of nowhere that feels like it's just a different book. It feels yeah. like a, a bit from a short story collection. Like oh, sure. City. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It, it feels like he had an idea for a short story, but hadn't yet reached 1500 pages. So he just shoved it <laughs> So more importantly, the, the other thing that happens in this chapter is that Nadine tries to seduce Larry who go ahead. Josh. Oh man. <laughs> I love this moment so much. She Nadine shows up at Larry's and Larry and Lucy come home and she says, we need to talk right now. It is now or never. And Lucy's very dismissive. She can see like she wants you now. You're not coming home to me. Go with her. Do whatever. And Larry's saying, it's fine. I'll be back. We're we're going to talk. And they take a little walk. And Nadine, Nadine finally offers herself to him he can't stop looking at her and he can tell that she's like she has this dress on and he can tell she's not wearing anything underneath and he can't like he can't stop thinking about how much he wants to have sex with nadine but in this moment where she says everything will be okay if this happens right now and this is the time that larry stands up against being a selfish jerk and dooms us all. I was going to say, <laughs> in this moment, uh, Nadine is begging him and he could go to her. Knowing what we know happens at the end of book two, did he make the right decision or not? Oof. That's a tough one because mm-hmm. as as we're going through these chapters, we're going to get little bits where both Harold and Nadine hesitate but something, as we've kind of talked about before, comes over them. And it's Randall Flagg's influence, I believe. And so maybe he he made a choice that would have been selfish, but ultimately served a, a greater purpose mm-hmm. because what would have happened might not have happened. But that only removes one person. And I, I know what she does later kind of brings Harold more fully into it, but he's teetering mm-hmm. on the edge so mm-hmm. much, I, I still feel like that influence her would influence, have. Could he have turned around too, and the ultimate tragedy not have happened? It's a matter of Larry's whole arc, the entire book, is him trying not to be selfish, him trying to make up for him being a dick, specifically to women. And in this moment, he says the the right thing for him to do to make up for all those past indiscretions is to say, no, I'm with Lucy and doing this would cheat, would be cheating. And I, that would be my old ways. This is my redemption. But is it because this is the moment that him doing what's right for him and Lucy is ultimately what dooms the community. I would argue that it ultimately might be a selfish act as well. Because Mm -hmm. yes, he's talking about the impact that this is going to have on Lucy, but he also has this thought that, okay, I'm at a crossroads. I'm Larry, this guy I want to be, this nice guy. If I do this with Nadine, I'm going to be not a nice guy, Larry. 
and I want this for me. So he he makes a good choice for himself, but I guess you could argue ultimately selfish too. And that is also considering the fact that let's say Larry said, okay, let's do this. We don't know that Flag's influence couldn't have somehow stopped that moment. Because it has another later. <laughs> <laughs> stopped a moment, I mean. Okay. <laughs> what? Uh, we'll get to it, yeah. All right, moving on. Chapter 54. <sighs> okay. <clears throat> Excerpts from the minutes of the Dairy Public Radio staff meeting on July 14th, 2019. Josh and Ben wait patiently for CM to gather her notes and lead them to the next plot point. <laughs> I motion that we create a census committee. I mean, there's only three of us now, but that number could explode at any moment. Anyone second that? Anybody? Seconded. Thank you, Josh. Motion passed. That's what you say. <laughs> All right. I, I also have motion <laughs> that if any of us decide to leave DPR, that person be jailed forever. Seconded. Can I get a second? Awesome. Thank you, Josh. I think we need to review uh, the rules of order. <laughs> okay, we, we can table that. All right. For my final motion, I have a note here that I'd like one of you to read. I wrote this about five minutes before you guys got here. Holy shit, I really dropped the ball. Anyway, I've tried to think of all the ramifications of this next motion, so keep that in mind when you're hearing what I'm proposing. I'd like us to create a Department of Law and Order in this studio with me at its head. I know it seems extreme right now, but what if one of us is late and didn't read the chapters for the episode? Next thing you know, we've got a murderer on our hands. Anyway, I think it'd be a good fit for Sheriff of this podcast. I'm already the editor, so if you disagree, I'll just fix it in post. <laughs> Seconded. Thank you. All right, motion passed. Th- that is exactly as uh, um, fascist as the Free Zone Committee is, so <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> There is one thing that I uh, found interesting about the this meeting. Um, there's a character I mentioned earlier. He's a bit character. Charlie Impening. He's a character that just is in the background. He was in uh, last episode. We didn't talk about him. But he was just a guy going around yelling, Hey, why are we here? We should go south. And just undermining everything. And Stu was like, that guy's a dick. (laughs) And then throughout these couple chapters, his name keeps popping up. And at one point in the last chapter, Stu even says, maybe there's some way we could, quotes, shut him up. And I'm (laughs) like, "Uh uh-oh. And during the minutes of this meeting, we find out that he's gone. I thought Charlie Impening was going to end up being a spy. Ooh. I don't remember, honest to God. (laughs) I just think he's a really interesting character because he's so small and insignificant, (laughs) uh, but keeps getting brought up. Oh, also during these minutes, uh, they talk about whether they should imprison defectors, which sucks. Yeah, that was one of my motions. I just got it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about Harold's other brush with being a good guy. He is on the burial committee, and he's working really hard, and he's earning the respect of the people around him, the people he's working with. He's doing an awesome job. He gets a nickname, you guys. Hawk. Hawk. Yeah. No, you have to say Hawk. 
Why do you have to say it like that? Isn't that how you guys pronounce Hawk? It's, I like to imagine Stephen King writing this and being like, man, I wish someone called me Hawk. <laughs> God, I, I just wish it's such a cool nickname. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. King, if you are reading this, um, thanks for the books, Hawk. That, that's for you. Wait, did you say if you're reading this? Did I? Maybe. I, I don't have. know. I, <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Mr. King, if you're getting the transcripts that I'm sending you <laughs> every week, no, this, please be my dad. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, the fact that he experiences this level of camaraderie and he gets this nickname and at first he thinks it's an insult. And oh, he's yeah. like, oh, this is, they actually like me. They are respecting me. And that's the moment it really sinks in that nobody here knows Old Harold. Old Harold doesn't exist in the memories of any of these people except for Fran. And he's been carrying that with him. But he doesn't look the same. He doesn't act the same. And he realizes he really could be a valuable part of this community if he wanted to. Mm -hmm. He's walking the line between good and evil, between love and hate, and just as we think maybe he's going to make the right decision, here comes Flag walking up Harold's sidewalk, dressed in some thin, silky material with no bra. <laughs> That's more or less right. Yeah, it it's is. the third time that in the book that Nadine is seen by someone and for a split second they think it's Flag mm-hmm. before they're like, oh, wait, no, that's not right. It, so we'll be... We will be respectful, I think, of this next part because it's icky. <laughs> it's gross. Um, he uses the phrase that he plunders her, and yeah. I don't like that at all. They also talk about all caps, the ridiculous thing, and I don't. We don't need to go into what that's a euphemism for. No. So but basically, bad. Harold is a sixteen-year-old boy. Just want to remind everybody of right. that with a not yet. Fully developed frontal lobe. This is what makes him still a child. Mentally, emotionally. And Nadine is an adult woman and a teacher. And she manipulates, and I'm just going to say it, molests him. For sure. It sucks. The whole scene. (laughs) I I think a lot of rules probably change in the apocalypse. But can we just hold on to the ones that protect children? Yes. Seconded. (laughs) Motion passed. (laughs) This is an instance of uh, King's recycling of phrases and terms, because uh, in the midst of all the ickiness, um, Nadine is going through and and coercing him. And she says that, uh, you know, we're going to go west when our time has come. But, quote, from now until then, it's recess for you and me. I can never hear the phrase recess <laughs> ever again. Thank you, Joyland. <laughs> or wait, was that Joyland or was that, that was uh, revival. revival? It doesn't matter. It's still gross. <laughs> the point is, people are getting recessed out <laughs> yeah. here. And this, the end of this chapter is one of the many notes that I had, you know, okay, this is it. Harold has made that irreparable decision he's a goner and then later i'll be like oh man he's teetering on the edge again (laughs) now he's a goner that's uh, yeah they do that a bunch of times in this book and it 
it's frustrating. It is, but I I don't know. Do you think it's it's earned or cheap? I think this the this past the part with the burial committee absolutely earned because there is that the the camaraderie the community is starting to erode at him and he's he almost sees the light but i think by like the third or fourth time it's like let's just get to the let's just get to the downfall (laughs) come on if i remember it the this chapter ends with the sentence harold lauder succumbed to his destiny and at that point from this point on Anytime we think he's teetering, that's on us because the book yeah. flat out told us yeah. this is the moment where he crossed the point of no return. So maybe that just means that we're all optimists and we want him, even though we kind of hate him, we want him to be okay because well, it's not entirely his fault. <laughs> uh, if you knew how book two ends, yeah, I definitely would have preferred uh, him, <laughs> to, him to back away and not do the big thing. All right. Well, why Oof. don't we head west in this episode towards the end of the book by moving on to chapter 55? <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Perfect. <laughs> that is a segue if I've ever heard one. Queen of segues. Uh, that's why I'm the sheriff of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Larry and the judge speculate on Mother Abigail's well-being. And the judge accurately guesses why Larry is there to talk to him. And he accepts his mission to go west. He also guesses why he's selected. And given his condition that they're probably going to send backups. I I thought his conversation, his like heart to heart with Larry about Nadine was really cool. Mm -hmm. Because he sort of tells him off. And I think Larry needs that. Uh, Basically, Larry thinks that Nadine is, you know, she's going through something. And he even says that he is afraid she might kill herself. And... The judge is like, that's, I mean, putting a lot on you there, buddy. Uh, yeah. You're, you're, you're not uh, the end all be all. <laughs> I think she, I think things will be all right. I think people, I think you're carrying, carrying Nadine's burden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He basically tells him to grow up. He's made yeah. his choice, live with it and be happy about it. And yes, she might, I would say become a victim of suicide because I feel, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that that's more accurate, but he said, yeah, she might do that. And then he says that there are a great many ways to commit suicide. A comment that comes back to haunt Larry. That's how we end that conversation. <laughs> yeah, I wanted uh, like, that's the most ominous thing you could ever tell someone. I took it as like, he's saying I'm going West. I'm an old man. I'm too old for adventure, but I'm doing this anyway. And then follows that up with, there are a lot of ways to commit suicide, Larry. And I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> judge, what you doing? Yeah, so you took that as him commenting on his own journey, yes. not just Nadine's. I absolutely oh, yeah. think that really? is his choice to go west oh. is he has no reason to believe he's coming back. But he's going anyway just for the sake of of the adventure. See, I I didn't get that sense just because of the things he was talking about before he confronts Larry with why he's there. Cause he's just saying, yeah, I want to, I just want to garden. I want to live a simple life, a simple, happy life. I don't mm-hmm. want to worry about things. And Larry's reaction is, you know, he describes it as comical. His face just falls. He's like, I hope you don't play poker <laughs> because I could tell when I was talking about this, that you got really sad and upset. And so I saw that as him having 
um, a plan for his life, a desire to live it, but understanding that there's something larger at stake and he was going to have to sacrifice that. More of a sacrifice, less of a suicide. Now, what's the difference? If you really think about it, if you think your sacrifice is going to lead to your death, there are a lot of ways to commit suicide, Sian. Yeah, but you're yeah. usually not committing suicide for the greater good of everyone around you. It's to their detriment. I think this depends is also, on your point of view, I yeah. suppose. And I think this is also him not saying I'm going to go there to die. He's saying he, he wants to return, like he wants mm. to succeed in the mission, but he is aware that the odds are heavily yeah. in the other he's way. Being he's realistic. still, yeah. Uh, especially, maybe I read too much into this. His plan for going west, to me. Once again, maybe I'm thinking way too much about it, but his plan is he's going to basically circumnavigate Vegas. He's going up north and then like looping around it to the south until he gets picked up by Flag's men, basically. Where to me, that seems like anyone genuinely going to Vegas would be beelining there because they feel the draw. And I just, I think his, it made me think his plan seems kind of doomed to fail like they're gonna pick him up and be like hey what the hell are you doing i don't know i i saw it as more of like a cover Mm -hmm. you know something to sort of shield him from obviously you came from that other community more of a oh like when you see a pretty girl in the supermarket and you accidentally crash your shopping cart into hers oh yes that thing that i do every time i go (laughs) shopping wait wait, he's had he's the judge is trying to set up a meet cute (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay cool (laughs) All right. (laughs) The next morning, (laughs) Judge leaves Boulder. And that afternoon, Nick, Ralph, and Stu pay Tom Cullen a visit. Fuck. Fucking hate this. So the group goes over to Tom's house, and Tom is so excited to have visitors. And he gives them a tour of his house, and the house is this hodgepodge of just things tom likes it's like a fun house yeah it's so great literally my uh, my notes are uh the group goes to tom house tom's house fuck these people for even considering sending tom west that's what this how is so heartbreaking. dare they one other thing when they they uh they go over it's uh nick ralph and Stu, and tom at first he's like points to Stu, and he's like i know you your name is and nick stops him from telling yeah. uh, Stu from telling him and he kind of like mimes out something or gives a note it's like what's something hot and hot and hearty eat and it's like Stu, your name's Stu. and so whenever he says Stu's name it's spelled s-t-e-w <laughs> that's that's adorable it's a beautiful moment it's really it good. really is but it stops being beautiful very quickly because they ask Tom if they can put him under again. And he says, I'm, I'm not sleepy. And then he, they ask him if Tom wants to see an elephant and he goes to sleep instantly. The first thing to point out is that Tom's voice is a different voice when he's under hypnosis. Cause he isn't Tom Cullen. He's God's Tom. Goosebumps. Oh, man. Fucking goosebumps. That was so cool. The next crazy thing is that he is the only one to have seen Flag's face in his dreams. And I I wrote down, there's, they, they ask him to describe Flag. And I really want to just read this paragraph. Awesome. Tom didn't speak for a long time. 
Stewart decided he wasn't going to answer, and he was prepared to go back to the script when Tom said, He looks like anybody you see on the street, but when he grins, birds fall dead off telephone lines. When he looks at you a certain way, your prostate goes bad and your urine burns. The grass yellows up and dies where he spits. He's always outside. He came out of time. He doesn't know himself. He was the name of a thousand demons. Jesus knocked him into a herd of pigs once. His name is Legion. He's afraid of us. We're inside. He knows magic. He can call the wolves and live in the crows. He's king of nowhere, but he's afraid of us. He's afraid of inside. Fuck. I have goosebumps just reading that. It's so good. I want the last several chapters, so much for the middle of book two, is political bullshit. And this chapter gets back to what I, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. Mm, Love it. The King of Nowhere is such a badass title. Such a badass. something else, and Josh, this is going to be a question directed towards you. So Tom knows what they want him to do. He's going to do it. He also knows that Mother Abigail is still alive. And he says something vital here. He says, Mother Abigail will see, but it'll be too late. There will be death. His death and his is emphasized. Did you have any, did that line stick out to you then or later? Later. I I knew it was obviously ominous, but I had no idea what it would be. And now it's painfully obvious. Yeah. (laughs) So they give Tom a script, basically. They tell him, you know, you're going to say that we kicked you out because you are feeble-minded. We didn't want you impregnating a woman and passing on your genes. And this part was heartbreaking because Tom acts out that script and his voice gets sad and he just, he seems so sad that he's being driven out of his home, his home that he Mm -hmm. loves. And even worse, that after all of this, and he understands what all of this means, it's so heart-wrenching that Stu falters and is almost unable to finish. And when there's a lull, Tom, in this clear voice that he doesn't have in his real life, just says simply, finish don't leave me out here in the dark. I teared up. Yeah. yeah. It's brutal. So Stu gives him some instructions. When the moon is full, come back. He also tells him to travel at night. And if he sees a group of people run, but if, if anybody sees him, like if one person sees him, kill that person. And Tom is like, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll <laughs> kill him. Yeah. Which I love because even Stu is like, mm-hmm. yeah, I... I saw the shadow pass his face. I think I don't think I can make Tom do something that is not yeah. in his character. Yeah, when he's telling Franny later, she's yeah. like, you can't hypnotize someone to not do something that they wouldn't do when they're awake. Yeah. And they are you can feel in this chapter the way King wrote it, the agony that these men feel for Tom as they're asking him to do this thing. Like I got sweaty mm-hmm. reading about it. Yeah, and these are the fucking good guys. Yeah. Well, when you and when you go back to the meeting where they picked these spies, it is ten sentences. It is the most brief and succinct committee notes because they were like, "Oh, these people done, cool, moving on." Oh, they argue about and Tom. They do, but now that we are at this time where you have to ask when it was when it was academic, mm-hmm. it was one thing. When it's reality, 
it's all settling in for them. Yeah. Stu goes home and agonizes with Franny over what they've done. She tells him Harold has a woman and neither of them are concerned about the age difference, which, if you're both adults, is totally fine. Franny comments that Harold was really into her sneakers when he was over earlier to visit. And we didn't mention um, when he comes home, he can tell. like mm-hmm. He has this intuition that someone has been in his house and he's investigating, he searches for his ledger, nobody touched that. But he finds a shoe print the very distinct soul in the dirt outside of his basement window. And he believes that Franny figured out that he read her diet, his diary, wait, that he read her diary. <laughs> yeah. And, and now, you know, she went to his house to get some sense about how he felt about it. And so he's really into her shoes. And that's all we need to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> the point is now he knows it was Fran and he knows that Fran knows nothing because if she'd found the ledger that news would have come out by now. And the weirdest part of all of it is that Fran notices that he keeps looking at her feet and doesn't weird, isn't weirded out. (laughs) Maybe she's just relieved. He's not looking at her chest for once. I, I guess. (laughs) I mean, I'd be just as creeped out if someone was staring at my feet and I knew they were a weird pervert. And this is where I have that other note, which is Harold considers for the last mm-hmm. time, question mark, <laughs> his two paths, and he allows himself to hold on to his resentment. Chapter 56. Boulder gets some more survivors. One of them is a doctor. And on the way to this town, he delivered two babies. And everything was fine. For a few hours. And then they died. Yeah. One of them passed away in 12 hours. The other one passed two days later. Somebody has the good sense to warn Stu that this this information is going to be passing through the town like wildfire. And maybe he should talk to Franny about it before someone else tells her. And of course, he's too late because these two don't actually talk to each other about anything important in any <laughs> timely fashion. She's understandably freaked out. The next cool thing that happens, Nadine returns home to pack up her life as Nadine mom. She runs into Joe, not Leo, but Joe. Larry, okay, Larry, Nadine thought that Larry was her last hope. I think that her last hope is actually here with Joe. Because she could make a choice here to, because he's, he's put, he has reverted back to Joe, like, and I think he's doing it intentionally, like maybe not mm-hmm. on a conscious level, but hey, look, someone still needs you. I still need you. I am this feral little boy again. I'm in my underwear. I'm sucking my thumb. I'm not responding to you like normal. You're needed. Mm-hmm. And she has a choice there. What do you guys think about that? I, I don't really think that she cares that much anymore. She's made her decision to move on because I did not feel her battling herself about whether to leave joe really oh she she doesn't but i do agree that this was a chance it Mm -hmm. this was joe's way of reaching out this was joe trying to say because i mean he has the shining he can read people's minds uh quite literally as we find out Mm -hmm. in a little bit um he knows that one of the things she said to to larry was i need to be needed and this was him saying here I am. Take care of me. And she fucks right off. Yeah, it's it's a bummer because it's another case of uh, this whole book. Nadine has basically no agency of her own. Mm-hmm. Everything she does is just 
whatever whim of the dark man. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I described her seducing Harold as flag approaching him because I wanted to be fair to the character. I don't know Mm -hmm. that she, that was really her. I don't know. Yeah. Part of it was, it's it's hard to tell tell how much control she has over herself. Um, a few other things that I just want to make note of in this chapter, because I think we have some cooler stuff <laughs> to get to. Yeah. Because there is another meeting, of course, mm-hmm. and people notice that the judge is gone because they try to nominate him to be on the law committee. And our our gang is not prepared for that. And they're not prepared for someone to nominate someone who's not in their close-knit circle of friends either. And that also happens. The next morning, Stu runs into Susan and Dana, and he just can't figure out lesbians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's weirdly weirded oh out God. by no. Yeah. Sue and Dana were two of the women that were rescued from uh, from that militaristic gang that Stu and Harold and Fran ran across, and but we haven't really gotten much of them. And this chapter made me go, "Why not? These right? two fucking kick ass!" Because <laughs> we learned that Dana. Uh, before the plague was this uh, feminist, like, uh, an activist. Activist. And that she had this abusive boyfriend that she, like, he tried to hit her and she beat the shit out of her. <laughs> That's rad! Yeah. <laughs> and I, like, instantly I was like, just in a few sentences, like, I love Dana. Why haven't we been reading about Dana this whole time? I've talked so much <laughs> about Harold. Who the fuck cares? And Franny, who just irritates the piss out of me. Like, yeah. I like Dana's character. It's like Franny is the opposite side of the coin from her. <laughs> yes. She's so... Franny would never attach an Assassin's Creed-style wrist blade to her <laughs> arm. That's yes. so fucking cool. Yes, because Dana is going to also go west... And she has her own plan, though. She has has a spring-loaded, double-sided, bladed knife strapped to her wrist. And she is going to do her damnedest to kill Flag herself. You know what is shit, though? What is absolute shit? That Stu kisses her for some reason? Twice? You know what else is (laughs) shit? (laughs) We're basically told a few paragraphs later that her plan fails because... It says no one ever sees her again. This is the second time in this section that we need a name for this because King loves this. That minute where it's just the middle of a regular paragraph and he just drops at the very end and they would be dead in a few months. Ben, we have a name for that. <laughs> no, oh, <uh-oh>. no. <laughs> Disagree. No, no, uh, no. It's, it's like... Uh, the the gauge moment. G- I uh, yeah, you know, it's delicious foreshadowing. Ke- no, 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 no. <laughs> you know what? No, we did a different name. That if doesn't make me cringe. If I have to constantly cringe. hear <laughs> from what? emails, Sorry, and I'm not saying it, comments. Uh, from what? What the book? The dark half? Uh, was there okay, a character? Anyway. No, there wasn't. You know, so, no. uh, Stu, Ralph, and Nick <laughs> say goodbye to Tom as he makes his way west. Franny visits Dr. George. He reassures her that, I got you. I'm a doctor. Yeah, those twins died, but there are a lot of other factors. We're just going to take this day by day, and I'm going to do my best to be a good doctor. And Harold builds a bomb for the committee. Yeah, it's there's just this that moment of Harold in his basement with Nadine just staring at him, 
while he is wiring up dynamite. This will mean nothing to you guys, but everyone go and listen to the song Cry for Judas by the Mountain Goats because it is basically Harold and Nadine's theme song. Uh, The first line of the song is some things you do just to see how bad they make you feel. And that sums up their entire arc in one line. You guys. And it's a great fucking song. (laughs) Harold and Nadine just became a music video inside my head. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm sorry about your head. (laughs) They're the alpha couple. They really are. (laughs) Don't worry about it. There's one person listening that might have gotten that. (laughs) Chapter 57. Larry and Leo are having a chat. And Leo hypnotizes himself with a ping pong ball? Yeah, I guess. Because it's described as similar to... The trance that Tom goes into. Yeah, when where he knows things. Yeah. And Leo knows things. So he says some cool stuff here. Let's talk about it. Well, the first thing is he says that Nadine mom is dead. Which I thought was a very accurate way to describe how she's changed. Like that he's saying that part of her is completely closed off and she, there's no coming back for her. Even though he can't articulate that thought any other way. He said, and he also shares that it's, it's the bad man's influence that's doing mm-hmm. it. That flag it has a, a hold of her. Uh, is it here that he says, or it might've been during Tom's hypnosis where he says, basically they, Larry mentions the, the committee and basically says, no, the committee's his ways. The, the committee is the old ways. That's, flags ways it's not gonna do anything i think that's here is it here mm-hmm. it, yeah yeah he's just like oh flag laughs at your dumb fucking computer. <laughs> yeah. it's a waste of time uh yours and ours for reading about it so. <laughs> <laughs> and then he yells at larry to finally talk to franny because together they can figure it out he doesn't spell out what it is but he says together you have both have the pieces of this puzzle mm-hmm. you know the answer Larry and Franny do some detective work, and while they do find Harold's ledger, they do not find anything about the bomb. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, anything that they recognize. Yeah, they they find the ledger, they read the first line, which is, I'm going to fucking kill Stu. And they're like, we have to do something about this. Slowly. Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever we do, we can't tell Stu about it. Until we know more. Yeah. Right. And it's September 1st. And we uh, ended last chapter with the bomb, knowing that uh, the meeting of the committee is slated for September 2nd. Yes, so we're like, why are you doing this? <laughs> while, while they're kind of figuring things out, Nadine is breaking in. Well, I guess she doesn't have to break in because they don't keep their doors locked. But mm-hmm. she's planting the bomb in Ralph and Nick's house in preparation for that meeting on the 2nd when all of them are going to be there. But again... This is interesting. She has a moment of doubt, of hesitation, and this blackness comes over her vision, and she feels Flag entering her, and the way that she describes it is like a rape. And let's talk about what happens when she wakes up and opens her eyes. That's very interesting that you use that term of phrase, that uh, that she feels uh, the way it came out to me and reminded me of uh, of the Dark Tower, of the drawing of the three, where it's as though something had been sitting in the backseat of her brain and then stepped forward to pilot her body. 
to mm. take her away. Yeah. God, I need to reread. <laughs> three. Uh, when she comes to, she's at this drive-in and has no recollection of how she got there. And the speakers all fall to the ground at the same time. And Flag's voice calls to her through those speakers. Okay. The scene, just sorry to interrupt. This scene is super cool. It's so cool. But this is another, have you guys caught that there are several moments in this book where all of a sudden you remember that it was written in the 70s and then <laughs> the version we're reading was just updated to be re-released in the 90s? Like, all of the musical references are all from the 50s. Yeah. And, uh the drive-in every <laughs> once in a while someone will say something's groovy or something it's like <laughs> come on <laughs> yeah there's some things that don't age well yeah but my favorite thing the my favorite thing that flag says to her is god may love stupidity but i do not he says that you will not go back to town he orders her to go to the amphitheater and that's where she's going to meet harold and after they meet and do what they need to do they'll head west to be with him. And her hair turns completely white. That Which was is cool. so <laughs> awesome. As she When she comes to Harold and is like, we've got to go. And he's like, the, what the fuck happened to you? <laughs> and yeah, stark white hair now. Chapter 58, Fran and Larry finally decide to tell someone else what's up. Stu reads the ledger and they talk about what Harold might be plotting and what they should do about it. And I think I think the decision they ultimately come on is exile, which, yeah, okay, we'll, I'm sure he'll care. Yeah. yeah. We'll, and not just we'll exile them, we'll exile them tomorrow after the meeting. Yeah. Why rush, you guys? <sighs> Harold and Nadine are already exiling themselves. They're um, a safe distance away, waiting for their moment. And Harold <laughs> wonders once more if they've both become completely insane and he hopes that he can make it west with his sanity intact if nothing else the free zone committee gathers in ralph and nick's house let's do this boring meeting that bounces back and forth between harold waiting to press the button (laughs) that is interesting because under any other circumstances it would be like Oh yeah, more fucking meeting. <laughs> but most of my notes are just like I didn't know how to spell like uh, <laughs> But that was just that feeling. Yeah, it's very tense cuz yeah. Franny's sitting on the floor with her back up against the closet where Nadine planted the shoebox with the bomb in it. And she's having intuitions here mm-hmm. that she's ignoring until the last possible moment. And the only thing that really gets, it it trips that trigger in her mind to finally be like, okay, we got to get out of here, is the sound of motorcycles coming. And for a split second, they all think, oh God, what if this is the start? What if that's Flag's troops? And so they start booking it out of the house. But it's not Flag's troops. No, it's, it's Dick. He has returned because they have found Mother Abigail and they need the doctor to come with them immediately because she looks terrible. And that is when Nick suddenly gets this intuition. He knows there's something in the closet. 
he pushes Fran out of the house as everybody's outside. And as Nick grabs the box, the walkie-talkie clicks on, and Harold's voice comes through, and the bomb explodes. Why did he have to find it? Why didn't he just leave the house? See, okay, this also bothered me. Because Nick, this is an act of God that Nick, the deaf mute, is the one that gets this feeling. I know where the bomb is. That has to be an act of God saying, go to the bomb. But it's too late. Since he arrived, Mother Abigail is said, Nick's the chosen one. Nick is the one to lead us. Why? Unless it wasn't an act of God and it was Flag being like, hey, over there, the <laughs> closet. Like, why was this the moment that he says, oh, I got to run towards the bomb? Well, or maybe the act of God was, hey, there's a bomb here. Get out. Why are you going towards <laughs> it? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, what's he going to like? Disarm it? Would you guys be like, oh shit, there's a bomb. I'm pretty sure I can probably disarm it. Or would you leave quickly? Fucking run. Leave immediately. The house explodes. And the only reason that they don't all die is because most of them have rushed out of the house to see Mother Abigail. Not to say they don't all get injured. Franny is thrown across the street into a pond. A couch lands on top of her. I think she gets like pelted in the face with somebody's arm somebody's severed uh, arm. a severed yeah. arm lands in front of her <sighs> uh dripping and uh, it's very gruesome and mm-hmm. upsetting overall seven people died 20 people were injured uh ralph lost his third and fourth finger on his left hand fran got her injuries but glenn had a chunk of his leg taken off yeah a chunk of his calf but Mother Abigail is somehow still alive. Yeah, chapter 59, we wake up with Franny. She's in the hospital. She's okay. She's injured and sore. The baby's okay. Nick obviously is dead, unfortunately. Going back to Tom, his Mm -hmm. prophecy that Mother Abigail would be too late. And Mother Abigail is dying. And she has a message for our group, which Franny reacts to swimmingly. Yeah. Um, First... We, we've talked about them enough, and I'm going to keep this brief. There's one more fucking meeting, but it's the last. You, you definitely get the, the feeling that it's the last meeting because it's Stu basically going up and trying to calm everyone because everyone is beside themselves uh, with fear and anger. I thought this was the most interesting meeting of them all because... Stu finally acknowledges something that I have written in my notes no less than six times. These are the good guys. Yeah. What did you guys think about that? I thought that meeting was another example of fuck Glenn. Um, (laughs) I'm tired of Glenn's bullshit, but it is it's the first meeting they've had that they didn't have the control over that they'd always had. And you can feel it falling apart. Yeah, it's it made me think like if these are the good guys that are trying to restart civilization is it worth saving there that's also a difference that i feel 
with we we keep referring to this group as the good guys. What they are is not the villains. Just because you're not the villains does not make you all the good guys. They're the status quo guys. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. So this is a story of neutral versus evil (laughs) rather than good versus evil. It's it's evil versus everyone else. The mother Abigail tells Stu, Larry, and Ralph, and Glenn that it is now their mission to head west and take out Flag. We find out that Nick was supposed to be that leader. And she even goes down the chain of command with if it's not Nick, then it falls to Stu. If Stu can't do it, Larry will. If Larry can't, Ralph will. And if Ralph, oh, fuck, I guess Glenn can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is a matter of step out of the story of what is happening. And let's think about King's thoughts as he's writing this. I think this book, it's so fucking long. It is a perfect example of... King's style of writing in that he never has a plan. I I do not believe King ever thinks ahead in his stories. (laughs) I think he just writes the story as it presents itself. And at a certain point, sometimes he writes himself into a corner because at this point he's like, she wakes up and she's like, Oh, I was supposed to be Nick. When was the last chapter we had that Nick was the focus? It has been Back so exactly. It has been so much more about Stu that when she's like, "Oh, Stu, you're gonna have to lead now," Stu's been leading for quite a while since the committee was formed. It would have been interesting if we had either had that relationship with Nick that we do with Stu, or if Stu, you know, and then Nick had died, or if mm-hmm. Stu had been the one this whole time and then he had died. Because that, as much as Honestly, I like I Nick, think that, would have, been way more that would have cost us, the readers, far more than losing Nick did. That would have been really fascinating if Nick had been kind of this background. We knew, oh, he's the chosen one. He's kind of been on God's side this whole time. Holy shit, Stu died? What? Mm-hmm. And now suddenly Nick steps forward mm-hmm. into his spot that he should have been in the whole time. Okay, here's where I disagree with this. Nick should have been the leader. Stu has been leading. Yes. But Stu's been leading because the real villain of this story, Glenn, <laughs> has orchestrated. Like, they have. They, this is. Nick was supposed to. We were supposed to gather and he was going to lead the forces against Flag. What he did is he led to the point and then Glenn and Stu kept getting drunk talking about let's fucking bring back the constitution and let's form a government. Let's brainwash and control all these people. Let's waste all of our fucking time building government instead of doing anything important. And Stu had, Stu had to be the mouthpiece for that because Nick can't. Nick should have been leading. They took that away from Nick and that is why everything is fucked. I second it. I 100% (laughs) agree with you. Uh, Damn. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Sorry, I got really passionate about that. No, I got a little carried away. That wraps up chapter 59. (laughs) Like, I literally can't follow that up with anything except (laughs) our heroes. Our heroes. Our heroes. Big finger quotes. (laughs) (laughs) No, our, our guys, our people we've been with, they leave they make their way west and fran and lucy standing on larry's porch watching him go waving goodbye there's a motion on the floor to adjourn can i get a second seconded 
That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us on our next episode, part five, where we will be covering book three, The End of the Stand. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn reminding you, when all the choices have been taken away, what do you do? You choose what's left. You choose whatever dark adventure was meant for you. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thanks for listening to The Stand Part 4. I'm curious what skills you all have that might come in handy in the dairy-free zone. Ben podcasts, Josh keeps it light, and I garden. Tell us your special skill on our social media at Dairy Public Radio. I want to take a moment to give a special thank you to our Patreon supporters. You have hung in there with us while we work toward our bonus content goal. We appreciate you all so, so much. Thank you, Alicia Lillian, Bryant Burnett, Jeremy Marr, Lisa Kahn, Phil Thiessen, and Reed Flynn. You are all the best. And Phil, you rock so much that I'm appointing you to our committee. Welcome to the Dairy Free Zone. And thank you to everyone who's given us a rating and review on iTunes. We sincerely appreciate your support. As always, check out our website, constantreaders.org, and our Patreon, patreon.com slash dairypublicradio. Another trivia question courtesy of the Illustrated Stephen King Trivia Book. Who played Franny Goldsmith in The Stand? Be the first to answer on our social media and win champion standing. If you get that reference, you are beautiful. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.